Welcome to episode 47 of The People on K-Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. On this episode, our guests are Amar Rava and Jessica Ceballos. Amar Rava is a writer who lives in Los Angeles. He was recently elected to Assembly District Delegate for the Democratic Party in Assembly District 51 of Los Angeles County. Once you know the rules that you can, you've realized like, oh, if I get a thousand people to go to that place and they vote progressive or they vote for, you know, these kind of policies, the people will change and that will have some effects like later on further up in the structure. Jessica Ceballos is a native of the Highland Park neighborhood in Los Angeles, where she currently serves as a neighborhood council member and works as an arts and community advocate. I think I always, I've always thought of art as a way to advocate for personal politics. I always saw activism as a way to, to understand how those things are. Like, and, and by activism, I mean communicating and working with, with people. And coming up later, we're going to hear a reading from Khalil Huffman, and we'll go out with a track from Los Angeles artist Deaf Sound. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond. It's like a broken record, magically repaired. You can listen to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3 PM. Or you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio, and you can find all of our previous episodes right there. You can also find us on insertblancpress.net. Just click on The People at the top of the page. Amar Rava and Jessica Ceballos, welcome to the people. Yeah, welcome, guys. Welcome, guys. Hello. Thank you. So, Amar, you were recently elected to office in AD 51. Can you explain what AD 51 is and what that office that you were elected to is exactly? Yeah. All right. So, I office, I, technically it is an office. Um, so, AD 51 is Assembly District 51, and it covers mostly uh, Northeast LA, so... Eagle Rock, Highland Park, and that's why I was at the Neighborhood Council meeting at Highland Park, and then um, El Sereno, which is where I live. Um, Echo Park is also part of it. Um, Lincoln Heights, where I live. Yep. Lincoln at Water Heights. Village, where we are right now. Yep, and at Water Village. And Chinatown. Yeah. And Chinatown. Oh, yeah. And unincorporated um, East L.A. Whoop, whoop. Yep, right. So wow. um, so it's a, a large area with a quite a variety of different people. Like, yeah. No one would question that assertion. Um, and so uh, the easiest way that I can think of explaining what it is that I was elected to is um, to imagine an electoral college that operates in California. Um, and uh, this electoral college is divided into thirds. The first third is every elected official in Californian office. So, you know, Jimmy Gomez, um, uh, Javier Becerra, whoever it is, they all have, they, are, they all operate as a delegate. Um, they get to appoint somewhere between three to ten individuals, um, and that's the second third mm-hmm. of, the, of the Electoral College. And the final third are basically people that are elected by v- Democratic voters in the district, and they show up at these elections, which are called ADM elections, um, and they vote on candidates to represent them. And there's 14 for each district, and there's 81 districts in California. Um, and those 14 delegates are divided um, seven, seven men and seven women. So that's uh, essentially <laughs> what I was elected to be, to be one of those delegates that goes to Sacramento and votes on party platform, votes on who's going to lead the the California party, um, votes on proposals, and um, endorses candidates who are running, um, which might seem like uh, not important, but given what happened in the election and how people got attuned to the inner workings of of the Democratic Party or the Republican Party suddenly became far more relevant. Mm-hmm. Um, so, 
Is that how you got interested in this kind of a thing by like throughout the election kind of drilling down and finding out more and more about how the party works? Is that how you got kind of exposed to this? I got exposed to this because I teach this class. I I co-taught this class and I still teach it now, but I teach it by myself called American Social Values at at Glendale Community College. Mm -hmm. Um, And the person that I co-taught the class with, um, Peggy Renner, um, she was a, she would say, I'm a Bernie delegate. Like I'm, uh, I do this. I, I went to Sacramento and I caused a ruckus. Like, what do you want me to say to, to the people there? Like, what are what do you think that I, you know, like what matters to you? And I was like, wow, she really has like a platform. Yeah. And, um, so I asked her what it was and, and basically what it was, was that she ran in Pasadena, um, got elected. And then she would be going to these meetings and learning about, like, the politics, um, the, the conversations people were having um, throughout the primary, and then up, uh, leading up to the general and after. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, after Trump got elected, like most people, not all, but many people at least, um, were shocked or flabbergasted dismayed. or dismayed, yeah, so exasperated. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, in my case, um, I was imagining the next 20 years of my life being uh, one of progress, right, where a lot of things that mattered to me were going to be addressed. Um, and even, you know, and I imagined that Hillary would be a vehicle for that because no matter what, she was essentially a very liberal um, candidate, right? Sure. Um, historically speaking. So, you know, I was like, oh, like things are going to happen. Like um, maybe I can focus on long-term politics and not be so concerned about the immediate nature of politics. But once Trump got elected, then I realized that no, the next 20 years was going to be about me fighting for those things that um, I thought that people had agreed upon or, or accepted as necessary. Right. Um, so in that moment of desperation, I, of course, turned to Peggy and I was like, oh, what should I do? And two days before the application was due, she sent me a link and said, you should do this. It's what I did. And so I you know, I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. I'll do this. And I filled out my statement, um, paid twenty dollars or twenty five dollars. And um and I thought I was going to know, like, the next day that I was going to be able to run. And, of course, it took them two weeks to to make it official. And then, you know, I think starting December 22nd, that's when I started to officially campaign. Right. Um, yeah. I Because, I mean, I saw on Facebook when you first started posting stuff. And, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. No. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, December 22nd to the election was January 8th. Yeah. Was yeah. The- two and a half weeks maybe um and we should say that the both of you come from uh art writing poetry ish backgrounds right and yet you are you're you're in these worlds that were like these local political worlds that we're talking about like what is the intersection between your work as writers and your involvement in politics for me it's actually uh a compartmentalizing of desire. Like for my work, I feel that if I speak to immediate things, um, it might not necessarily matter five years down the line or 10 years down the line. So I tend to think about long-term um, uh, overarching sort of political arcs. And I like to incorporate that into my work because, you know, like, so colonialism and its after effects or, um, you know, environmental, like, degradation and what that means to a group of people, but not necessarily a specific policy of the time and of the place and maybe, like, a, you know, ridiculous argument between Trump saying that climate change doesn't exist and everyone else saying that it does, right? I wouldn't want to write that down in a book because maybe 10 years from now, it wouldn't matter because everyone was like, that guy was crazy. You know, he just wanted to drill, like... Um, and, and it takes me so long to write that I actually have to worry about such a phenomenon. Like, uh, my first book, it literally took me 10 years to write. 
and I don't imagine changing my strategy of writing. Like I think that a lot is gained by by approaching your work in that slow way. Um, so for me, like engaging in politics avoids the impulse to um, subjugate my like artistic work to a more immediate concern. And for me, I I think I always I've always thought of art as a way to advocate for personal politics. Um, I am not trained in writing, um, but I've always written as a way to express um, my childhood dysfunction. Uh, was in foster care. I, you know, had there was abuse in my family, um, and there was mental health issues, and I always saw activism as a way to to understand how those things are like and, and by activism I mean communicating and working with with people pretty much um, from all backgrounds and and uh, and from those places where I visited through my childhood momentary you know through moments um, here and there so yeah I I was Green Party pretty much all my life um, I campaigned for Nader and I lived in Alaska I was an AmeriCorps member lived in Alaska I campaigned for uh, Kucinich over there um, um, after AmeriCorps because there was that was there was a lot of red tape and bureaucracy. bureaucracy. Um, I was developing um, distance education, online uh, high school programs for rural Alaskans, and there was a lot of red tape. It was during the um, the No Child Left Behind Act, like when it was just getting started. And that's when I realized, like, I want to get involved on a deeper level um, through influencing policy. And so now I'm interested in in how art plays a role in all of that, um, because tax money is used in in ways that fund art programs, and a lot of those art programs are programs working with. Uh, institutions, um, incarcerated people, uh, mental health organizations. So there's a big intersection there. And for me personally, art saved my life. So I think that's <laughs> that's pretty political. Just to ask both of you, I had a, uh, we've talked off mic a little bit about like uh, kind of the bureaucracies that you both have dealt with with these different kind of uh, positions that you're you've put yourself in or found yourselves in. Um, and I found it really interesting in the recent election, it seemed like constantly there was another moment where it was like, oh, now we have to find out more about how uh, Democratic uh, delegates are, are, are apportioned in, in the Democratic Party. Or, you know, or it was, oh, but maybe the Electoral College, you know, there was always another level of red tape that was suddenly like, oh, but maybe this would work. So I've, I wonder if there's actually, you know, what, what most people think of as red tape as being like, you know, a morass you have to wade through if on some level like finding out more and more about like how things are actually done if if in some way that's that could that's actually kind of exciting i i don't i don't know i'm starting to learn i don't know if there's red if it's red tape as much as it is accessibility it's an accessibility issue because um, there's our resources there are websites there's information but it's having that access um, and a lot of times it's just, it's not red tape that blocks things. It's just not knowing. Um, so, and I, I think there's nothing wrong with there being, with everything being kind of compartmentalized. Because uh-huh. um, there's, it's, it's a more efficient way to, um, to account for things, basically. Mm-hmm. There um, being procedures and... Yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, sure. yeah, and just different departments for different, you know, like the CAC and the NEA and and there's, you know, there's all these and neighborhood council and there's compartments for all of this. Um, I think that's, there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. And I want it, uh, I actually think that it's an opportunity, um, but also it's just it, suddenly you're aware of these structures that have been in place for a long time and we're not taught about these structures we're not um, shown the way about these structures and I think that's purposeful Mm -hmm. like that's a form of disenfranchisement Mm -hmm. in itself Um, but once you realize it's there once you find like the green papers when you go down your election nightmare day and you're like well what does all this mean and you find yourself on this website you realize how elaborate these structures are I think also what gets revealed is that they're easy to subvert 
Yeah. Once you know the rules that you can, you realize like, oh, if I get a thousand people to go to that place and they vote progressive or they vote for, you know, these kind of policies, the people will change and that will have some effects like later on further up in the structure. Mm -hmm. And a thousand people is not that many. And I bet you in many cases, you don't even need a thousand, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in my case, literally 289 people voted for me. And I don't know what the outcome of that is. But as a hurdle for Mm -hmm. anyone, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's an insurmountable one. I think that's a very, um, it's it's, it's not. And that was during a cycle where the turnout was three times more than historical turnout. So like two years ago, maybe it was like you literally needed a hundred people to yeah. to vote for you, for you to suddenly have a voice on a on a statewide level, right? Um, and that's that's pretty crazy, all yeah. things considered. Like it's a measure of how um, how because people don't know about these structures, they don't actually have a voice in the in the shaping of the people who occupy the spaces. And so, you know, like two weeks prior to me deciding, like uh, Peggy telling me, like you should do this, was when I had the strange idea late at night when I learned when I read Trump's tweet that he had four thousand uh, appointments that or four thousand positions that he had to fill. And so I went to the website and I was like, oh. Maybe I can subvert this by running to, you know, like submitting to run the NEA or something. And I was telling, you know, Amina and she thought I was crazy and that I had lost my soul. And I was like, no, like you need people like that to preserve the goodness so that when the next person comes around, it's still there. Yeah. And of course, I told Peggy and she was like, "Eh, well, uh, um, try this. (laughs) Try this instead. Um. But if you don't know someone yeah. who already knows this stuff, but I think that we all actually have people close to us in some way that have in, have in, examined these structures and have gotten involved and engaged. Um, and those of us who are in, who work in some capacity within these structures, I think it's our responsibility to share. You're listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1638 AM. We'll return to our conversation with Amar Rava and Jessica Ceballos in a few minutes. But first, a new installment of Notes from the People. In this installment of Notes from the People, we're dipping back into the Machine Project archive. You can find out more about Machine Project at machineproject.com. We're going to hear from Los Angeles writer and artist Jabadi Khalil Huffman for a reading of the first poem from Huffman's book Sleeperhold, published by Fence Books in 2015 and recorded in the Mystery Theater at Machine Project on March 3rd, 2015. This is called Niagara. On the first day of the poem, we perform a trust exercise. On the next day, we all start dancing in the street. There is a moment of silence during which Everyone traded clothes. You were just beginning to come into your own when you have to adopt the speech of a telemarketer. When we all come to, you say, it's been so long since I've had a good laugh at your expense. When was the last time you told a joke that wasn't a veiled reference to your beliefs? On the third day of the poem, The graph showing our decline is played by a tarantula. The boy is played by a method actress. Our theme song is the Star-Spangled Banner. On the surface of nature is an argument for crying your eyes out and a coupon for more disaster. On the fourth day of the poem, we retire into a glacial haven pleasantly as an asthmatic Gladys Knight impersonator, as an elk of the earth, a shriner of the earth, a husband of a daughter of the American Revolution. I will spend part of infinity as a migraine colored rush, barreling as always into a room of children sleeping. I am secretly in love with the girl who tells me I haven't heard a saxophone breakdown in a while, so I'm going to put on this Carly Simon record and see what happens. I'm going to carry the tune of an imaginary latitude 
as the star of an undercover operation at a time of a scarcity of gloves, ominous territory in which a middle-aged everyman coming unplugged inside a wall of sound inside your asshole. Otherwise, I imagine the rest of the bad guys hiding as they have in the Wild West, bearing their name for the internet, then appearing as that person in real life. I haven't been attacked for a long time or for a similar beginning, or else I've torn down the sign and started over with a different parachute. I am in love with the girl who calls everyone into a huddle and gives a speech to motivate them into believing they are rich and tells everyone to put their hand in and say Antarctica on the count of 100. At the count of 5,000, everyone ought to pour buckets of Gatorade onto the fire. I'd like to give myself enough hand jobs until I can forget. I'm in love with a girl who says, before Gossip Girl, there was Edith Wharton. Norman Mailer, Norman Mailer in Vietnam started out at the same time in a declension of assholes, in the middle of a frenzied weekend of mapping the Bermuda Triangle, in the time when Jupiter disappeared at the dawn of the life of its many moons. Every day, a new brand of vodka is invented in America. Nothing matriculates like surrealism, where I go into a different octave and say, it's all over, anyone can see the planets are inedible bodies of work, and you tell me that's the highest thing I've ever said. You don't know if I'm really there anymore to tell you about what happened on the last show in a special 20-part episode of Judge Judy. We only talk about blasphemy to distract ourselves from the tension in the air, to build a fortress around our hearts. I don't know why I do the things I do. I'm going to go to sleep and wake up and watch Daria for a while. I'm sure you know where you have been and can describe it for me in several languages. I know what you did last night and the night before Christmas. You can barely have one. How can you tolerate both or even several of them in a knife fight? Much as I fantasize about having hate sex with captains of industry, same as I've taken to fleeing to the edge of town, my life is the opposite of yoga, the same as jogging when someone is chasing you. Now let's return to our conversation with Amar Rava and Jessica Sabayas. I was nominated onto the Highland Park Neighborhood Council in 2014. I decided to because of what was happening in Highland Park. And the development, the um, the retentating on Figueroa, and I wanted to, I, I went in with the assumption that I would be able to change that um, and maybe influence policy. And so, you know, in the Neighborhood Council, so basically the Neighborhood Council, a little bit of background, um, was started... I don't know the year. I want to say 1992 or, yeah, something. Um, but they were started as kind of an affront to government. Uh, people didn't feel that they were being heard. Um, and so, and they weren't being given, like some of the money wasn't, they, they felt it wasn't being um, fairly distributed. So, a couple people decided let's start these neighborhood councils there you know within the city of Los Angeles and and we can um, you know a lot so get some money from the city and and have a certain amount allotted per per neighborhood council so there's the money there's a budget which is now 42,000 and they basically neighborhood councils are considered the middleman between the community like it's very grassroots and the council district, the councilman's office. Um, so basically what we do is we vote to support or not support um, building, new building developments or alcohol licenses, 
or we also grant um we we grant we have a neighborhood purpose grant where we grant money we vote on giving money to schools or art programs it's pretty great uh, that is the plus of the council but we can only do so much we don't have we don't have the agency to to pass to to not pass things or to block to block certain developments or to pass laws and we have very little influence on on the city and for doing that so we you know i realized it's we can only do so much and i think as long as i think in a smaller perspective where like we are actually helping the community members like we have 60,000 residents we try to get them to come in and share the events that are happening or anything that they're doing in the community that benefits the community at large. Yeah, as long as I keep the scope narrow and focused on the community, those 60,000 residents and how we can benefit them, um, it's positive and it's good. I was curious as to how you, did anyone suggest that you run? Did they, did they give you uh, pointers or... Um, a clue as to the procedures because from what I when I went to the neighborhood council meeting it seemed very much um, steeped in like a bureaucracy and bylaws that everyone is familiar with but not necessarily the people aka the stakeholders as they're referred to in these contexts who come right, right. Um, like you can't talk about something unless it's on the agenda um, and so likewise like how is it that one runs to be on the neighborhood council. I mean, you just don't, can't walk in there and be like, I want to be on neighborhood council. So, um. right. So it's a it's a biannual um, uh, election. So, you know, I I think someone had told me about the neighborhood council, or I knew about it, and I had decided just from my own personal experience, I I had an interest in local policy, and or just you know, local community work, activism. And and I knew about it, and I decided to run that year, and you just run. It really is like grassroots. You make your own, you know, flyers, and you apply online. Of course, there are – that's a little problematic because it's any stakeholder 16 and older who can, who can um, vote, but you have to have a driver's license – but not all count neighborhood councils require a driver's license. Some require two license or two IDs um, in order to 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 vote. But some neighborhood councils don't, depending on the bylaws. For undocumented or uh, homeless populations, they don't have ID. So so yeah, it becomes a problem. And some neighborhood councils are lenient about that, even if it's in the bylaws. But then they're not. Then they're reported for, you know, someone files a grievance and says that they let they were lenient and let people come in without IDs, and it becomes problematic. Um, so it discourages a certain portion of the population absolutely. from having a voice in government. So even on that level, it's, it's, um, it's not without its flaws, the government. Um, yeah, and then, but you can, anybody is open to voting. How someone figures it out it's online on um well now there's the website empower la website which has all your information for all 96 neighborhood councils so it's a lot easier because it says you know this is how you apply and you click the buttons um but like i didn't know there was a website and before. i didn't either yeah. <laughs> until you sent me that text yeah there i had no idea and and then it's just you go to a meeting and then you can kind of ask once you go to the meeting and but just like any it's pretty similar to any office where there's a public speaker or any kind of uh, government like meeting or uh, committee meeting. There's, uh, you know, you fill out a speaker card, there are your rules, and then you can talk about anything you want to talk about. And there's minutes taken, so they always have record of that. And and then you can always have them, hold them accountable for not, you know, hearing you on that issue not doing something about it um yeah so but that's where like I'm interested in neighborhood council I'm interested on that and in, in that grassroots level of activism um it's our tax money that money so I really believe firmly in that we should do something with that um ourselves with our own money and we've had 
people come maybe two years ago, we've had uh, meetings where 50 people come to protest a building, um, a building sale, a renovation of an apartment building complex. Um, and again, yeah. for people who aren't from L.A. or, or cities that have similar issues right. that we do here, what why why would someone show up and protest the, the building of a new apartment complex? Yeah, because uh, Highland Park in the last three years um, has experienced um, a number of apartment retenanting, um, displacement, where lower-income tenants are being evicted from their apartment because of the new sale, and then they want to resell the apartment at a higher and pay and charge higher uh, rental prices for those units. And in the last maybe eight years, there's been a, during the neighborhood council meetings, uh, a large majority, like 95% of the time, the neighborhood council has offered their support of these developments. And so the people for a while were coming out and protesting. But up until maybe a year ago, um, the community, I think, began to feel that it wasn't doing anything. So, so they kind of stopped coming. Um, but it's good to protest because it, I think it does slow down um, the, the desire for these new owners to come in and ask for our support. So, and then they just have to try to get their permits uh, without our support. And which isn't doesn't always look good. And Mark, can you talk about your involvement in these kinds of? Because you said you've been to uh, neighborhood council meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk about your experience uh, in that kind of an arena and your own recent run uh, for political office as well? So the the two are, are connected. Um, when I decided to run, I reached out to Jessica. And her suggestion was like, oh, you should come to neighborhood council meeting and introduce yourself. And I didn't even know that that was possible, that any person could go to a neighborhood council meeting and just say something, um, regardless of if it, if it being on the, an agenda item, because they have a section called the general comments section. And uh, you fill out a speaker card beforehand, and then they call your name, and then you get to speak. So... Uh, you know, when I went to the Highland Park Neighborhood Council, there were a number of other people who were running for, you know, like uh, uh, CD34, since that's being vacated. And so it's like the the representative that represents us in the in, at Sacramento. Yeah. Um, so it's like the state representative. And so uh, because he's vacating because he's now the attorney general, um, this is... Is Javier Becerra, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so there's going to be a special election for, a, you know, and, and there's a number of people who are running, um, and I think the the election's in March. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, there was a couple of candidates who came to present themselves to the neighborhood, um, and so I, I did the same. And, uh, you know, Jessica pointed out, she sent me a text about Empower LA, um, and that led me to find all the neighborhood councils and then I went to the ones that I could. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, and that was a pretty um, engaging experience because I also went to the El Sereno um, Neighborhood Council and I heard what they discussed and what their concerns were. And, um, you know, I'm sure on different different months and different meetings, like, the concerns are different. But um, the week that I went to the Highland Park one, it was very contentious because there are a number of people who oppose um, how Highland Park is changing and for who it's changing. Tell us about Highland Park as as we all kind of remember it mm-hmm. um, and what it's sort of what it's becoming now. I think Jessica would probably be better at explaining that. Sure. Um, a little bit of history, I guess. Um, so, OK, I'll go way back. So in the 50s, 40s and 50s it was a largely white population and but mount washington was polish italian and mexican-american um but so then of course like every a lot of communities in la uh white flight happened so they left um, because there were too many mexican-americans coming into the neighborhood and so 
in the 70s, um, there was a boom. And and by boom, I mean there was um, the Chicano movement happened in L.A. And art happened. And Highland Park was a, an epicenter for that. And what art does is it creates communities that bonds people of all backgrounds. And so I think um, it Highland Park started off as a very eclectic, very... Um, and I mean, I use that word in like the truest sense of the word um, and everything, backgrounds and art and everything. And and it was um, it was a place where lower income and middle income like just survived together. And, I, and that might be because it's like almost like an island where it's surrounded by the Arroyo and the freeway and trees. And it was like, yeah, so so it had its own little like system and. And then in the 80s, the avenues happened, and that's the gang wars. The avenues, which is a, which is mostly a Mexican American gang, and it got really bad in the 80s. It was really violent. Um, Highland Park, Cypress Park, the surrounding areas, and then in the 90s, there were gang induction. Is that what they're called? Gang induction. Injunctions. Injunctions. Right? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So criminalizing people, right? So everybody went to jail. And then, um, well, this is like a really <laughs> summary, uh, summarization of everything, but then in the uh, mid to like early 2000s, everybody was released. And um, so basically I went through all of this, but during that whole process uh, there, it was a community that was self-sustaining and self-sustainable, lower income, um, mostly Spanish speaking folks had stores to go to they had their own you know there was that were familiar to their cultural identity and that they were comfortable with and that was what made up york no matter i mean it was dangerous we know we can't argue that um but york and figueroa were bustling you know fantastic streets that anybody can afford you can afford to shop at and so for me I am more interested in the commercial aspect of gentrification and how that kind of, the removing of those important cultural identity factors that people can relate to and that people can afford. Um, when then you remove those, you're removing that self-sustainability. And, and that's what happened on Figueroa. Pretty much every store, like there was probably 10 stores that were retenanted, meaning someone is, the owner hires a woman, um, and it was one woman, who goes in and gives money to the tenant, the business tenant, and and says, you know, take this money or whatever, like whatever amount it is, and and leave. And then nine times out of ten, they leave and they cash out. They want to retire, and then they bring in new folks uh, that new tenants that will pay five times that, and. And that's what happened. And it was just like a desert for like, this was recently probably four years ago that started um, pretty suddenly. And now all of those buildings are being rented out, leased. It's become a very different neighborhood. Yeah, it's become a very different neighborhood. So what happened during that process, it, you know, the market rates are higher. It becomes more attractive. It's been like on Forbes magazine, um, as the as the next best place and so owners of buildings um they're getting older these owners and they sell their uh their buildings to orange county developers or just to millionaires and who are really the only ones who can afford these these um the new the buildings at the cost that these owners are selling and because the current tenants can't afford the new rent that's proposed because they're refurbishing the place and everything, they are evicted. What community do you think all of these businesses and newer things are serving? Yeah, so the higher, the the more affluent, which is about 12% of the community. In Highland Park? Yeah, so they're not serving the community. They're serving tourists. Mm -hmm. And yeah, for uh, for the most part, the the patrons of the restaurants are from the neighboring neighboring communities of Eagle Rock or mm-hmm. Silver Lake, because a lot and then a lot of the building, a lot of the um, the restaurant owners are, have been established in other neighborhoods. Um, Grand Central Market has a lot of 
restaurants or chefs that are now moving to Highland Park, for instance. Um, and that's Grand Central Market in downtown. In downtown. Yeah. Yes. And um, and another thing that it's has it's affected is the schooling. Hmm. So like Monta Vista Elementary School, for instance, which is a large in large part um, immigrant or lower income. Um, they're seeing a drop in students, so they've had to let go of teachers, and they're struggling and because they have less money. And a lot, a lot of that is because the neighboring uh, residents have been displaced. You're listening to The People in Kei Chung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. You can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio there in the iTunes store, and you can find there all of our past episodes for free. And you can go to insertblancpress.net and click on the people at the top of the page. And now back to our conversation with Amar Rava and Jessica Ceballos. Last year has been really difficult for me as a teacher, um, mostly because I'm in California and a lot of uh, uh, students were very much into Bernie, right? Um, during the primary, most of them were engaged by his ideas. Um, they went to rallies. I went to the rally um, in L.A., which was phenomenal, like, like 40,000 people or more than that, and a lot of people that seemed um, diverse and like me at the same time, right? Um, and, you know, as the year progressed and uh, more and more aspects of the political process or the democratic process um, made itself known as being not as... Um, in you know, with integrity as we imagined, right? Like there was a, there was like cracks in its sort of uh, ability for people to feel like their voice was heard. Um, and you know, one thing that I always do in my classes, like the critical thinking one, and this American social values class, is like I insist that people get engaged, that they go out and vote, that they um, advocate for what they believe in, that they're not powerless, that there isn't some sort of hegemonic structure, there's no Illuminati that is controlling their lives, because those are the arguments they'll forward mm. as like the reason why they are apathetic or they feel disempowered. So you know, I I provide the counter argument. But this year, that counter-argument fell apart. They had the stronger argument. They had the super delegates. They had the, oh, what about that email that WikiLeaks released? Like, you know, previously, they didn't even know what WikiLeaks was. Now they're like, yeah, well, what about this email? And what do you think of this? Like, how could you believe in this? Um, and so suddenly I realized that um, if I was even going to um, have this stance, if I was going to forward this argument, I needed different terms to work with, and I needed to show them that, yeah, you can, in fact, um, find a voice in the structure and the system. So, uh, so that was like my primary motivation to to run because um, either a, I was going to find out that it was horribly corrupt and that there was no possibility, or b, I was going to find out that um, the opposite was true that you can actually. Um, push yourself out there and try to make a difference. And that was what I hoped. And uh, miraculously, it appears that uh, it's a possibility, right? Um, and, you know, like when I was talking to people at the election, um, you know, the a lot of them agreed. They didn't feel like um, the Democratic Party was holding itself to up to a higher standard. Um, and I think what people need is a higher standard, one where they feel that it is fair that there's no one pushing the scales in favor of one person over another, that, um, that people have a chance. Um, because I think historically that's been our problem with the two-party system, and that's why we've, we've often tried to, to install a third, to, because we don't think that either two are serving our interests. Um, so now that the third has influenced for such a long time, the Democratic Party, some of those issues now are being discussed. So instead of reacting to, say, Trump, there are now, there's now proactive measures, you think, that are going to be placed or like, you know, you're going to work for legislature that isn't necessarily a reaction to what's happening, but, but some of those issues will be now brought to the table, like 
the green issues or you know wages and immigration reform that hasn't really been pushed yeah no i mean yeah. i think that especially with what happened over this weekend with this like different set of of progressive delegates all across california they're trying to advocate for those values that they often share with the green party um and they're not, uh, it doesn't seem, the motivation doesn't seem to be like a reaction to a Trump presidency or just a matter of holding the status quo. It's about literally changing um, what the party stands for so that um, instead of disenfranchising or pushing people away because the things that, you know, like a living wage or, you know, a health care for all or single party, you know, single system, uh, single payer health care or uh, climate change is real and we need to do something about it. Those things are across the board values that and ideas that I think that um, many Democrats, progressives and plenty of Republicans um, share. And often people are independent anyway when it comes to a general election. So if you're not speaking to people, if you're holding them at arm's length, keeping, you know, having hidden meetings and um, maintaining the status quo, like people will just move on and ignore the system altogether. Um, and I think that there's enough people that realize that, no, we should co-opt this. We should make it represent us because what's been going on hasn't helped. Um, so, I mean, that's what I experienced, at least on s Sunday. So on Sunday, you were elected to this position. So now what what do you see or, I mean, tell us what what is it that you will do over the next, say, year or two years? Because it's, it's a two-year position, correct? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But in the next few months slash over the next two years, what what will this look like for you? I mean, it within like an hour's uh I'm basically, a, a, you know, I became friends with all the other people that, like, through Facebook or whatever, sure. um, that were elected. Um, many of them, like, many of us interacted on Sunday, but often we didn't, we hadn't met each other until that day. Yeah. Um, and now I think it's like that we, as a group, are going to try to work together to forward the causes that we agree on, right? And... Um, that could be like uh, campaigning for individuals that are running in March. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't speak to what's going to happen because it's a group decision, right? Um, but what I do know is that every one of those people is accountable to the, the people in the community. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, like, uh, I think there's this unfortunate dichotomy or sort of um, role that people imagine like a, a public servant serves that you know they that you elect them because of what they represent and then they go and do it mm -hmm. but I think the problem with that is that and you imagine that they have like um, solid concrete sort of uh, positions and that you're it's like they're selling their wares in a certain way like I'm for this are you down with that and will you let me do that for you but I think um, instead it should be more about a dialogue between those people and the people they supposedly represent um, so that whatever happens happens because of a serious desire right uh -huh. um, and I don't know if if this is just because I'm an, a writer and I often question structures and roles and um, how we look at things. Um, but a part of me feels like I should, in a certain way, vacate some of my own desires in exchange for the desires of the community, right? Um, that I should be advocating for what they want in some way or another. And, and often I believe we share a lot of the same beliefs and values and desires. Um, so do you think that in some way? Yeah, I, th I, don't, I don't see those two separate. Like mm -hmm. a lot of times that's why we were voted mm -hmm. on this level. Exactly, right? Um, voted in, yeah. Um, yeah, and then I'm interested to, to see, uh, like not necessarily you and I, but these, like I wasn't too aware of, your, of that office, um, mm -hmm. of those offices. And... So maybe there's a way that the neighborhood council, there's a lot of power. Remember, there's 96 neighborhood councils in mm -hmm. L.A., and that's a lot of power. Each neighborhood council has about 19 seats, and, and there's money. 
and there are committees like outreach committees and so maybe you know they can work together Mm -hmm. um i know i'm on i sit on the i'm a homelessness liaison for the city of la and the measure hhh uh, which we voted in Mm -hmm. last november um they decided to bring the empower la in and see how neighborhood councils can work too so they designated a liaison per neighborhood council and we just we had one meeting last month and but there are 64 strategic plans and process that are, are kind of in the planning process right now and once those rolls roll out you know we're going to have to start working with our local officials uh, and it's easier to work with them when they're you know closer to home like grassroots um like our districts my interest is getting the community involved community because a lot of the community are not interested in neighborhood councils are not interested in voting they have been um marginalized for so long they just have no trust um so getting them involved in the process as locally as we can will help to instill that trust again i think and what is what is that can you be specific about what getting involved means? Like, what yeah. what would you suggest? There's, you know, atten- showing up, showing up for us um, who are elected officials or just concerned community citizens who are active. Um, showing up to to meetings. There's tenants union meetings right now happening everywhere. The Los Angeles Tenants Union, um, which I'm a co-organizer with in in our chapter in Northeast LA. We have, there's chapters all over LA and just showing up and listening to folks and talking to them um, who are on the verge of losing their, their, um, their housing. Or shelters, you know, getting involved with, the, uh, with, the, with LA's homelessness um, measure that, that is launching. Um, yeah, I'm just going across town into another neighborhood council and just to hear what they're saying, what they're talking about. Showing up and being present. Just showing up yeah. and present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's one way. Um, or, yeah, just, or, and then from us, from people who are interested in, um, who can, who, have, who maybe have a space um, that they can lend for the cause, uh, they could ask their local community um, organizer or government, neighborhood council member or government official council member to maybe hold like a day-long civic 101 kind of thing, class. And um, Eric Arcetti used to do that in mm-hmm. um, District mm-hmm. 13. And little things like that. And yeah. or I mean, yeah. showing up seems to be really important, right? And I think that what I was trying to say is that through showing up and having a dialogue with people as a group, um, you know, policy, values, all of those things become solidified. And it's not that, it's like, even when I say like, we often agree on many of the things that we think need to happen, we can't necessarily prioritize those without a sort of register of like, what is the most important thing at this moment? Like, and I think that's where showing up actually gives um, people an idea, right? Especially if they have a uh, some sort of position that can um, further that, right? That they, if they have a platform, then they know like, oh yeah, this is what um, the people I know and see and talk to that came, what matters to them. And it seems that that's what happens at the neighborhood council too. Like you get an idea of what um, means something to um, the community when they show up and say things. Right. right. Um, and it's, it suddenly becomes a priority as opposed to this is one of the hundred things that matter to me and I know matter to someone in the district. But which one do we focus on? Because often anything that we're engaged with, it's always a, a slow process. It's a, a long term process, like I was talking about it in terms of 20 years. Um, you need to, you know, prioritize and then have a sequence of things. Um, and so I think that um, is really important. Um, and, you know, like my, uh, I thought that maybe this whole thing of like getting involved in politics was um, a stretch for someone like me, a writer who spends most of his time by himself reading, thinking. Um, uh, but then, you know, my my mother was like, oh, no, you're both your grandparents. They were heavily involved in politics. And I think that if you look at, you know, every and I think many people have um, people in their family, in their life that are engaged civically, and it's not a thing. 
it's not a it's not a stretch it's almost just, it's just like part of the fabric of their existence and i think it would be wonderful if more and more people approached what we call politics and the sort of like alienation or distance it implies um, and set that aside and make it instead more about like yeah this is like me drinking coffee or right. you know uh, eating a burrito or you know having a coke or whatever it is it's just like a mundane quotidian thing like i'm going to go to that meeting and let them you know say what i think um and i think that is maybe something that we can gain from the sort of disempowerment that we feel from what's happened in the past year well amar rava and jessica ceballos thank you for being on the people thanks thank so much thank you, thank you. You've been listening to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Matthew Timmons. And I'm Ben White. You can find us on iTunes by searching the iTunes store for The People Radio. And you can find us at Insert Blanc Press by going to insertblancpress.net and clicking on The People. It's at the top of the page. You can also find us on Stitcher or SoundCloud or wherever else you get your podcasts. And even on Facebook. And you can like us there on Facebook and follow what we do. Please do that. Please do that. Our theme music is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller. And we're going to go out with a song by Deaf Sound from the Kings of Neon Project. Deaf Sound was recently named one of the 10 LA artists to watch in 2017 by the LA Weekly. You can find more vibes on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com backslash Defry. That's D-E-F-F-E-R-Y. Or at DefSoundMusic.com. That's D-E-F-SoundMusic.com. And the name of the track is I Need You to Know. I need you to know. I still need time to grow. I want you in my life. Ha, 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 ha.